I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest edition of Just Getting Started right here on Westwood One Podcasts. I am your humble host, Rich Eisen, and we've got a very special show in store for you. And I know I I use those words seriously, even though back in my days of being young and watching TV shows a little bit too much, when you would hear about a very special episode, you'd go, okay, yeah, right. Everybody says that. But we've got Dr. Anthony Fauci on this show. And as everybody who has been kind enough to download and or hopefully subscribe to this podcast over the first month plus, you realize that uh, the show is mostly about pulling out something for you to take with you on your journey if you need to just get started on something new or just get started on a life path that you've always wanted to take based on circumstances with a pandemic or something else. Pulling out somebody's origin story, whether it's an Academy Award winner like Matthew McConaughey or a, an entrepreneur and a very successful businessman and best-selling author in Damon John or a best-selling novelist in last week, Harlan Coben. We had Soledad O'Brien on as well. It's been mostly geared towards the business world or your own spiritual wellness, trying to just get started on something. Today, we're going to just delve directly right into the pandemic. And I've got a bunch of questions for Dr. Anthony Fauci, not only on how he got started on his life path, but about how we can all get started on getting back to life as normal with the COVID-19 pandemic now over a year old and vaccinations in this country in the United States now coming up close to a half year of existence. And that whole process, the way it is going and how we, if you are fully vaccinated, can go about your business, how we, if you are unvaccinated, can go about your business and why you should get the vaccine so we can all get back to business and life is normal. So Dr. Anthony Fauci is my guest on this week's edition of Just Getting Started. He is a director of the United States National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and the chief medical advisor to the president of the United States honored and pleased to have here on Just Getting Started, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, thanks for the time. I greatly appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thank you for having me. You bet. How does one become an immunologist? Why did you get started on this path, Dr. Fauci? It was just my my interest in medicine in general. And as I began studying medicine, I got very interested in the relationship between the body's defenses against infection and the actual infections that historically have been you know, shaping civilizations over the centuries. So infectious disease and immunology is a very exciting field. If you look at the impact that infections have had on civilization, you know, from smallpox to measles to polio to the plague, it's just a very exciting and gratifying field. So when you got started, was there somebody who gave you a big leg up? Was there, I guess, if you will, a breakthrough for you? Back in the day? 
Dr. Fauci? No, it really wasn't. I had originally started out thinking I wanted to just practice medicine in New York City. I did my training in medical school in New York City at the New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center, which is now Wild Cornell. And I came down to the NIH here in Bethesda, which is, you know, the largest research institution in the world to study the combination of infectious diseases and immunology. And it was my fellowship here for three years that really turned me on and caught my interest in wanting to do clinical research in the context of infectious diseases. And then things really turned around for me in 1981 when we had the first cases of what would turn out to be HIV AIDS. And that's really been my main area of interest and research for the last 40 years as the director of the Institute. I've been involved in all of the outbreaks, including pandemic flu and Ebola and Zika and chikungunya and things like that. But what we're going through right now with COVID-19 really is unprecedented in its impact. So it started off a long time ago with HIV AIDS as an emerging infection and worked its way up to here we are right now with probably the biggest public health challenge that we faced in over 100 years. What prepared you for the toughest moments for you over the last year plus? Was there anything that you can recall that set the stage for you to meet the moment as best you could over the last year plus, Dr. Fauci? You know, there isn't one single thing, Rich. It, it is sort of a gradual accumulation of both experience and capability. I would think the early years of HIV AIDS was probably the thing that prepares you for the unfolding of an outbreak that you know very little about in the first days, weeks, months. And then as the weeks and months go by, you learn more and more and you realize, unfortunately, with this particular outbreak, how much worse it was than you could have imagined. That preparation for me began 40 years ago when I devoted most of my activities to addressing that disease, which was brand new and mysterious at the time, which was HIV AIDS, which is now, we know a lot about it. We have excellent therapies for it, even though it still is a global challenge. Nonetheless, a person at least in our world, who gets diagnosed and gets on an appropriate regimen of therapy can live essentially a normal life. That was very different than in the early years, 1981, two, three, four, five, when I was taking care of desperately ill persons with HIV at a time when almost all of them were dying. I mean, it was almost 100% mortality to see that transformed with the development of drugs into a disease that people can now almost live a normal life. That was sort of my baptism of fire in dealing with outbreaks such as what we're dealing with right now. Is there a through line of the presidents that you've served under, a certain character of the presidents that you served under that, that you've noticed? Part of this podcast is about leadership and part of this podcast is about people trying to get started on their lives that might have been upended by this pandemic. But have you noticed anything of that nature? I mean, I have had the privilege of serving directly and being advisory to seven presidents, starting with Ronald Reagan and going right up through George H.W. Bush, President Clinton, George W. Bush, 
President Obama, President Trump, and now President Joe Biden. They're all different, but it's fascinating and understandable how their presidency is often shaped by the circumstances within which their presidency exists. I mean, if you look at each different president has different challenges. I mean, in the very beginning, uh, Ronald Reagan, who was a very popular president, that was the early years when HIV first emerged. And very many people feel understandably that he was a very, an excellent president. But one of the things that he's, his legacy is, is sort of tainted by was he didn't respond as aggressively as he could have to the early years of HIV. He could have used the bully pulpit of the presidency to call attention to this emerging plague. George H.W. Bush, one of the finest gentlemen that I've ever met, he got it and started to really put support and, and resources to studying HIV. And then when we got to Clinton, that got even better. George W. Bush started the PEPFAR program, which was the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, which you know really has now resulted in the saving of about 14 to 15 million lives. Most people don't appreciate that accomplishment on his part of creating a system where you could treat, care for, and prevent HIV infection in the developing world. But that's something that will be a very positive part of his legacy. You know, and Obama had a lot of challenges. If you look at my field of infectious diseases, you know, we had pandemic flu, we had Ebola, we had Zika, uh, we had all of those things. And then the last year of the Trump administration was dominated by COVID-19, which, you know, clearly impacted greatly the entire planet, but also very likely had an important impact on the outcome of his presidential reelection. Well, and then that's one thing I want to ask you, Dr. Fauci, is I guess your reaction to that sometimes we as Americans need to have somebody famous affected by an infectious disease before we take it seriously. I would say HIV and AIDS, Magic Johnson. And obviously when Tom Hanks became infected with COVID-19. Rudy Gobert of the NBA made the NBA pause. I'm wondering, you as an infectious diseases doctor and a leader globally, what do you think of that sometimes we as Americans, or maybe globally, need that to wake up? You're absolutely correct. Things don't settle into people's mind as being real until it affects something that they can directly relate to. You're absolutely right with Magic Johnson, but even before then, you might remember AIDS was felt to be something that was somebody else's problem. Then when Rock Hudson Hudson. got infected and actually died of HIV AIDS, it became clear that anyone and everyone who was in a particular risk category could actually get infected and ultimately die. So that was a big eye-opener for people. Probably Magic Johnson was the most dramatic of that because he was a beloved person. And a heterosexual man, a healthy superstar athlete, and when he got infected, that's when everyone said, oh my goodness, you know, anyone could get infected if they're 
practice a certain type of risk behavior. So it was really a very, very important situation. I mean, I was just talking to some of the people who are actually doing a documentary on magic is that, you know, he stepped down from the NBA and then came back. Remember, I really didn't want to see him step down because I wanted him to make it clear that, you know, he could very well continue on his professional career, even though he was living with HIV. And that's why when he came back, I felt very good about that because that really said that people can, if they're properly cared for, essentially get back to normal existence. And he was a good example. And is even to this day, I mean, he's a highly successful entrepreneur and businessman. Yeah. And Arthur Rash obviously passing away too, but does it disappoint you? Does it get you frustrated that we sometimes need to have that happen to someone famous in order for us to take seriously something you know to be so serious that the seriousness needs to be grasped nationally and internationally a lot faster. Yes, that's a very good point, Rich. Often when you're dealing with outbreaks of this part, people have, I don't know whether it's a self-protective mechanism to say, well, that can't happen to me. That's somebody else's problem. And then when you see it happen to a person that you can relate to, you realize that it could be close to home for you. We're having a very difficult situation of messaging with COVID-19 because, you know, most young, healthy people, if they do get infected, not always, but if they do get infected, they generally have mild symptoms and don't have the high risk of a severe outcome that either an elderly person or someone with an underlying medical condition would have. That really gives a distortion of what the ultimate impact of this terrible pandemic is. As you know, 540 plus thousand people in the United States have already died from this. And there are still some people who take it lightly, who think it's nothing special. In fact, there are some people who even think that this is a hoax. It's fake news. It's not real. That's really astounding that that's the case. But there are some people, not not just a trivial number, who don't really take it very seriously because they don't think it's going to necessarily impact them until it does. And then it's too late. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Why do you think there's a, a messaging issue with vaccines right now as we turn the page to the, the way out? Why do you think that that is an issue? 
Dr. Fauci? You know, it's a complicated situation. It isn't, you know, a unidimensional issue or monolithic in the sense of there's one reason why there's hesitancy. And anybody who has hesitancy about a vaccine comes at it from the same perspective. That's just not the case. There are people who are fundamentally anti-vaccine, period, no matter what. That's really a very small minority of the group. There are others that have various reasons to be hesitant. I think the one that we've dealt with a fair amount is minorities, namely brown and black people, who understandably have skepticism about it because federally run medical programs, historically, if you go back in history, have not really treated brown and black people well. You know, going back to the very shameful episode of the Tuskegee experiments decades and decades ago, which even though most of the African-Americans today were not born at the time that the Tuskegee experiments took place, yet that was been passed down from generation to generation about not trusting federally directed medical programs. So the way we overcome that is to respect the fact that brown and black people have skepticism and don't just blow it off and say, you know, we can understand why you have skepticism, but you need to understand that in today's world, there are ethical guidelines and ethical constraints that would make something like that shameful episode of Tuskegee never, ever been able to happen again. Once you do that, then you could start addressing some of the real concerns that they have. They think, well, maybe the vaccine was developed too quickly and maybe it was careless. Maybe we rushed it. Maybe corners were cut. But that's not the case because the speed with which the vaccines were developed was a reflection of the extraordinary advances that had been made in biomedical research and vaccine platform technology over the previous few decades. Once you get that spoken and discussed, it is gratifying to see how many people turn around and say, you know, I understand now I'm not being skeptical anymore. I'll be willing to go ahead and take the vaccine. The thing that I don't understand very well, I don't even know how we can counter this, is when people, according to political lines, decide they don't want to get vaccinated. Surveys show that 30% or more of Republicans don't feel they want to get vaccinated with the COVID-19 vaccination. This is not a political issue. So it doesn't really make any sense that someone, according to their political persuasion, don't want to get vaccinated. That really is, is strange, I think. In fact, it goes along with the strangeness of wanting to wear a mask or not relates to whether you're on one side of the political spectrum or the other, which again, you should separate public health matters completely from political considerations. But that's not been the case over the last year with COVID-19. Perhaps maybe if I can offer a couple cents as a fully vaccinated individual, my wife and I got two shots of the Pfizer a couple months ago after we volunteered and it was an amazing day volunteering and the septuagenarian and octogenarians and who were first in line and getting that shot, they were honking their horns as we were 
directing them to a 15-minute wait line or a 30-minute wait line. And it really was invigorating just to see this in person. And we we received a shot at the end of the day. And so we're fully vaccinated. But quite frankly, and we we pay attention to the news and we're attuned to what you say quite a bit, Dr. Fauci. We don't know what we're able to do. Are we able to go to indoor dining, for instance? Or what what are we or what is a fully vaccinated person able to do now that they were not able to do over the last year plus? Yeah, well, that's a great question, Rich. And the CDC has come out with the first installment of recommendations and guidelines what fully vaccinated people can do. And over the coming weeks and months, they will be coming up with more and more guidelines. The first thing is that fully vaccinated people in the setting of the home can now clearly interact without masks, can have physical contact, can hug, do whatever you want to do. Even if you have a person who is not vaccinated in the home setting with vaccinated people, so long as that unvaccinated person doesn't have an underlying condition that would put them at risk for a severe outcome, then you could interact together without masks. You could have physical contact. You know, one of the things that specifically is an example, what about grandma who gets vaccinated? Can she visit her daughter and her granddaughter who have not been vaccinated? And the answer is absolutely yes. So long as the daughter and the granddaughter do not have an underlying condition that if they wind up getting infected, that they could get a serious outcome. In other words, are they normal, healthy people? The questions that need to be addressed now that the CDC is trying to gain enough data to make a scientifically based recommendation is what can fully vaccinated people do with travel, with the workplace, with houses of worship? I think until they come out with guidelines, we would need to use some common sense about what risks we're willing to take. So for example, the reason you don't hear saying, well, you can go out and go in any restaurant you want and do indoor dining and things like that, because that's going to depend on the level of infection in the community. If the level of infection in the community is very low, you can be much more flexible on the kinds of things you can do. But right now, just yesterday, there were over 50,000 new infections in the country. That's a very high baseline level of infection. So I think the combination of more people getting vaccinated and the level of infection on a daily basis getting lower and lower will then make it much easier and safer for you and I, and I'm doubly vaccinated too, for you and I to start doing things that we were a bit reluctant to do before like dining, theater, and things like that. What do you think of of sporting teams and sporting venues opening up indoor seating? The Miami Heat in particular have uh, come up with a concept of a, a vaccinated section, like a, a vaccinated section and a non-vaccinated section. Do you support that? Are you fine with something like that or you're still concerned? I don't like to pass judgment about being fine or not, because then it gets taken out of context, almost like I've made a recommendation for the country. And and I don't want to get ahead of the CDC in their recommendations, but I can make some general 
statements. Let's take outdoor. I mean, I believe that, you know, every day we're getting two to three million people vaccinated. We already right now have over 40 million people are fully vaccinated in the country and 80 plus million have already received at least one vaccination. As we start getting into the spring and early summer, I believe you're going to start seeing in the outdoor ballparks of Major League Baseball, you're going to be seeing seating where you have people in the stands. Unlike last year, where there was essentially nobody in the stands, you're going to start seeing incrementally increased numbers of people that are allowed in the stands. Indoor is a bit different. You know, you made some proposals that are not unreasonable about as long as you get good ventilation, people masked and people may be segregated. And that doesn't seem like a bad idea of having places where people who are vaccinated could go. I think that would be not so bad. I wouldn't want to make a determination on that. I'd leave that to the CDC. But as we get further and further, week by week, month by month, as we get into the summer, I believe that you're going to start seeing a a rather significant uh, progression towards normality with regard to what sports can do, both indoors and outdoors. What about... Dr. Fauci, you know, and I know this question might be going a little bit too far down the road as you're still looking for arms to put, or look at some point you might be looking for arms to put vaccines into uh, sometime this summer, maybe, or if not sooner than that. I don't want to put words in your mouth. So if you want to answer that as part of the question, that's fine. But do I have to, and do people who get vaccinated now have to get it again? Is this going to be like a flu shot every year? Hey, go get your flu shot, go get your COVID-19 shot. Is that the way this is going to be for all of us in the future here? You know, Rich, a commonly asked question that we don't have a definitive answer for because we don't know yet how long this immunity, this protection lasts because this is new uncharted territory for us. This is the first year and it has not even been a full year since we started vaccinating people. So we don't know whether it's going to last a year or two or three. We know for sure that we have at least six to eight months experience. So it's going to be at least six months. And, you know, as another month or two go by, it'll be eight months. But right now, the people who got vaccinated six months ago, when you followed them, they appear to have continued immunity. It probably will wane off a bit, but we don't know how far down it'll go. So the honest and transparent and humble answer to your question is we don't know, (laughs) but we're going to find out for sure. How do you? Just by following people. I mean, you know, we vaccinated now, you know, tens of millions of people. The people who were in the original vaccine trial, the Pfizer trial had 44,000 people. The Moderna trial had 30,000 people. The J&J trial had 40,000 people. Those people are going to be followed for up to two years. So you will know how long a level of immunity lasts. And then we'll be able to definitively answer your question. So what's your best guess on, I got a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, 7-year-old. When when do they get potentially or need to get a, a vaccine? You know, good question. So the studies are being done now in all of those age groups. So since children are vulnerable vulnerable to the safety of the vaccine because you don't want to be putting something into the arms of children 
unless you are sure that it's safe and effective in normal adults. And then you want to test it in children gradually to make sure it's safe. Having said that, by the time we get to the early fall, it is felt that we will have enough information to be able to vaccinate high school students. When you talk about younger than that, 12 to 9, 9 to 6, 6 to 2 years, 6 months to 2 years, it is felt that the the studies that we're doing, we will get enough information by the end of this calendar year and the very beginning of the first quarter of 2022. So if your younger children likely will be vaccinated by the end of the year, the beginning of next year, the child that's going into high school likely by the fall. And so my kids currently, again, uh, second grade, fourth grade, sixth grade, when they're through college, are we still living with this? You know, I mean, how, what's your best guess as to how, you know, this stays? <laughs> That's a lack of a better phrase. It's a great question. I mean, it's a question everybody's asking. Uh, and the answer is, again, we don't know. But let me tell you the things that will determine it. So when you have a global pandemic like we're having now, you've got to have a global response. What do I mean by that? So if we get almost all people vaccinated in this country, we get you know 70, 85% of the people vaccinated. Many of the people will have been infected, so they'll have immunity anyway. So you get a really good veil of protection in this country. And other countries, the European Union, the UK, Australia, Canada, they do that. That would be really good. But to answer your question, what then happens? As long as there's disease and infection circulating anywhere in the world, it's a threat to everywhere in the world. So that's the reason why we've got to take seriously the idea of making sure that there's vaccine available throughout the world. Because if you have a raging degree of infection in Southern Africa or in Asia or in the Caribbean, it's always going to be a threat to the United States, to Canada, to Australia, et cetera. So it is conceivable, if we do it right, that we could crush this to the point where we don't have to worry about it ever again. If we don't do it on a global level, it could linger so that we have to keep worrying about perhaps revaccinating people every year or every few years. That's entirely possible if we don't suppress it throughout the world. So and then as I wrap up with you here, Dr. Fauci, and this could potentially dovetail into making sure everyone understands that because the vaccines came up so quickly, it's not because, you know, don't forget that there were uh, years upon years upon years of research that got everybody prepared for this moment to come up with these vaccines. How prepared are we for another? God forbid. How prepared are we for, for the next, if there is one? Well, if, if we do lessons learned, Rich, we will be much better prepared. There were so many things that could have been done better. You know, the ability to get testing off the ground quickly, that's one thing. Also, we really need to strengthen our local public health infrastructure, which has, over the decades, really undergone a lot of attrition. So, for example, the ability to do identification, isolation, and contact tracing, we did not do that very well at all. We also need to build a global health security network 
where you have communication, transparency, cooperation, and collaboration among all countries of the world, so that when something comes up, you know about it quickly, you can act on it quickly, and you learn immediately really what the characteristics of the outbreak is that did not happen in the first weeks to a month of this outbreak in China. So there are a lot of things that we've got to have lessons learned, which I hope we have the corporate memory to benefit from that. I guess. And then I've asked every one of my guests on this show, and again, it's been uh, mostly attuned to getting people through whatever they've gotten through over the last year with the pandemic, mostly, to try and just get started on their lives once again. For people who are absolutely frightened about what happened over the last year, even if they haven't lost a loved one, how do you tell everybody to just get started on their lives normally? dealing with this situation? Yeah, that's a great question because that's something we're going to have to face soon. I think people should understand that this is going to end. It really will. There is so much frustration. We've been living, I know I have, and I'm sure so many other people, kind of a surrealistic existence over the last year where your entire life has been upended, some more than others. This is going to end. We're going to get it under control and we will get back to normal. So your advice to people is just hang in there a bit longer. Don't get discouraged. It's going to end. Vaccines are going to be the end game answer to this. When we get enough people vaccinated, it's going to turn this around very dramatically. So just hang in there. Keep pulling with it. It's going to be okay. Same thing to you. You hang in there. I will. I mean, you just... This has probably been quite the journey for you over the last year and your family. I appreciate it, Rich. Thank you for having me on your show. Appreciate it. I appreciate that. Man, when we're through all this, maybe we can talk about who's the greatest athlete in the history of Holy Cross. You were Bob Cousy. <laughs> it's got to be the Coos all the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to talk about such, uh, such things with you, Dr. Fauci. Thanks for being here on Just Getting Started. Thank you. Take care. Good to be with you. Well, that was pretty cool. That was just all kinds of awesome. Dr. Anthony Fauci is someone who I've admired throughout this entire process, speaking truth when it's very difficult for many of us to hear it. It's difficult. And I've also seen some of the responses that I've received on Twitter since I announced that Dr. Fauci was going to be on this program and how many people feel that the way that he's talked about the virus or his belief system on how to handle the virus is been steeped in something other than the science. And I hope uh, his appearance on this show disabuses anyone of that notion. He's clearly about, throughout his entire remarkable career, the public health and everybody's health and making sure that the science rules the day. And I do hope, again, that anybody out there who might be hesitant to get the vaccine for whatever reason, hearing this podcast doesn't take it in anything other than the proper spirit of wanting everyone to be healthy, that you take the vaccine as soon as you possibly can. And uh, again, I'll just tell the story that my wife and I here, you know, in Southern California, one day went and volunteered at a mass vaccination site in Southern California and spent the day waving cars from the vaccination point where they got the shots in the arms through the window provided by nurses and members of the Los Angeles County Public Health Department. 
And I remember just being there. It was cold. It's chilly out, even for Southern California. And we're standing there, my wife and I, and others that we met, standing at the end of the parking lot where cars either had to go to a 30-minute wait or a 15-minute wait based on what they told the nurses when they got the shot, if they have ever had some sort of a side effect from any vaccine, any shot in their lives. So those who were concerned about maybe getting a side effect from the vaccine would be sent to the 30-minute spot, and others who didn't have that concern sent to the 15-minute spot, and they had a sign in the window that was placed in their on their dashboard by one of the nurses as to which line they should go. So somebody like me or my wife would know to wave them to the 15-minute line or the 30-minute line. And just to see the looks on the faces of, and it was mostly the elderly, because again, this was early on in the process when there was a, a very small subset of people who were allowed to get the vaccine. Just seeing the look on the faces of these people who were in their 70s and 80s or had some sort of underlying condition that required them to get the shot on that day and just seeing the look of relief and the honking of the horns and the pumping of the fists was awesome. There's no other way to put it other than just simply awesome. And we got into it and it was a sense of community and a sense of excitement and a sense of optimism that my wife and I had not felt in months in a long time. And the only sense of community that I could equate this to that I ever felt was volunteering in Southern Manhattan, Lower Manhattan after 9-11, making sure that first responders were getting fed or needed some food or drink or clothes, collecting clothes for those who needed it and doling out all sorts and all manners of supplies. And even though it was a horrible time. There was a sense of we're all pulling together for the greater good and we're going to get through this together. There was a sense of it. And the vaccine made us feel that way. And then getting stuck later in the day as there were leftover vaccines. My wife and I were we were all over it. And we didn't have any side effects. It was the Pfizer, for anyone who's wondering. We had no side effects. And just the sense that we both had that as our children were, were going to go back to school, as we were going about our lives, trying to seek out any normalcy, the fact that we got vaccinated was incredible. And I understand people may be hesitant or concerned that who knows, maybe months from now, I'll be regretting saying this on just getting started about the vaccine because we'll learn something about it. I'm, I'm not one of those people. Uh, I hope you're not, and that you do trust the science and trust the people who are saying that they would never administer something like this, even if there was a shadow of a doubt of there being something overly concerning. You know, I'm I'm all for somebody like the Miami Heat or other sports organizations saying, hey, there is a fully vaccinated section, and you only get to, you know, if you're from the same family, sit together. And you'll be a couple of seats apart from somebody else who's fully vaccinated. And let's go and cheer for your team from a very nice seat. 
I hope that doesn't last too long because I want to get back to normal, getting ready for another Major League Baseball season. I'm going to be heading to the NFL draft at the end of the month for NFL Network. The fact that I'm fully vaccinated gives me a self-confidence and a level of excitement that I haven't felt in a while. I just wanted to say those things as we uh, appreciate Dr. Fauci being on the show. Next week, we return a little bit more to the business side of things. Gary Vaynerchuk, the one and only entrepreneur, businessman, and best-selling author, and somebody who gives tremendous advice to folks who are wondering how to just get started. So tune in next week, and we'll see you on the next edition of Just Getting Started.